Good evening. I'm Kate France. And I'm Tabby Tyler. Tonight we talk about how the trailblazing actresses on Star Trek often paid the price for progress. So grab a beverage. It's time for a night in. Space. The final frontier. It's finally happening. We are doing a show on Star Trek. My time has come! The greatest moment of my professional life is definitely me getting to watch Star Trek and call it research. Well, our time, because I too have become quite the Trekkie. Or, um, Trekker? Which is it? Because I've come to learn that Trekkie carries a negative connotation. Well, I personally say I'm a Trekkie because in my experience, it's usually some 55 or older person giving me stink eye at a con saying, uh, actually, we are called Trekkers, even though I'm in full Starfleet uniform. Oh, God. Who's that guy in The Simpsons? The, uh, um, actually comic book guy? Um, actually, his name is Jeff Albertson. Get good, Kate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the point is, I've watched a lot of Star Trek in a very short amount of time. You have. And in doing so, you have seen why Star Trek is such a global phenomenon. Star Trek, while being in good company with other star-related franchises, has left a unique footprint on the cultural and technological landscape of the world. With 13 movies, 9 series, and countless books, comics, and games, there have been so many ways to expand on Gene Roddenberry's original utopian vision. The impact of that vision cannot be overstated. Cell phones, automatic doors, Google Maps, 3D printers, and so many other advancements were all inspired by Star Trek. In 1976, NASA even named their shuttle Enterprise after the fictional NCC-1701. But Star Trek has had a huge cultural impact as well, especially in terms of on-screen diversity and feminism. And in honor of Women's History Month, we wanted to talk about the women of Star Trek, both fictional and non, and what they have accomplished for women's representation. To talk about Star Trek and powerful female role models, you first have to talk about a woman who never donned a uniform or picked up a phaser, Lucille Ball. As in Lucille Ball of I Love Lucy. I Love Lucy was a blockbuster. It changed the television industry forever and showed that women could lead a series and, against the initial judgments of most men at the time, be funny. Lucille Ball was incredibly business savvy and made bank off of Lucy. And the financial windfall of the series allowed Lucille and her husband at the time, Desi Arnaz, the owners of Desilu Productions, to buy the former RKO Studios next to Paramount in 1957. Their company was responsible for popular shows like The Andy Griffith Show and The Dick Van Dyke Show. A couple years after divorcing her husband, Lucille went ahead and bought out his shares of the company and became the most powerful woman in television. This is key because her clout allowed Star Trek to be made in the first place. The first Star Trek pilot, titled The Cage, was expensive to film, but Lucille overruled her board of directors and ensured the pilot's production. When NBC rejected that first pilot episode, her reputation encouraged NBC to order a second pilot with a new leading man, William Shatner, which Lucy agreed to help finance, once again over her board's objections. This got Star Trek on the air. If it were not for Lucy, former studio executive Ed Hawley said, there would be no Star Trek today. The original series of Star Trek we all know and love premiered in the fall of 1966 on NBC. 
There were many changes made since the rejection of the cage, besides William Shatner sitting in the captain's chair. Most of the changes were required by the network due to poor results with test audiences, namely in response to the female characters. The worst of the responses were mostly directed towards number one, the first officer played by Michelle Barrett. Audiences hated a woman in a leadership role and called her pushy, annoying, and hated how she tried so hard to fit in with the men. In general, any masculine traits in the female characters were criticized and ultimately removed to get the show on the air. Thusly, in the position of first officer, we now had Spock, and Michelle Barrett was recast as Nurse Chapel. Two other regular female characters were created, Yeoman Rand with her impressive beehive hairdo and the legendary Lieutenant Nyota Uhura. It's easy to dismiss these three characters as nominal female placeholders based on their ultra-feminine and revealing costumes. I've worn those uniforms to several cons. Those skirts are ridiculously short. And the worst part is, they weren't even supposed to be wearing ultra-feminine and revealing costumes. In the original pilot, the women were wearing the same uniforms as the men, but test audiences did not like how masculine the women appeared to be, so their uniforms were changed as well. But regardless of their uniforms, these characters were a form of representation few had seen before on television at the time. All of them were professionals, leaders, and authority figures, both confident in giving orders and accustomed to them being followed. They were the original women in STEM on TV. There is an episode where Uhura has to take apart her console and repair and modify it. Her technical skill is appreciated and respected by her colleagues and commanding officers, and she feels confident enough in her position and authority to tell Spock to back off and give her the space to do her job. This was not the norm on TV in the 60s. This portrayal of women with agency, however, was inconsistent, and Star Trek was rife with various cringeworthy moments. The fact that Khan ends up a true threat to the Federation is only because a female member of the crew helplessly fell in love with him. And Ahura, who has some of the most powerful female moments on the show, also gets this line, I'm an illogical woman who's beginning to feel too much a part of that communications console. Why don't you tell me how I'm an attractive young lady? Or ask me if I've ever been in love. Tell me how your planet Vulcan looks on a lazy evening when the moon is full. <laughs> Clearly something you say to your commanding officer on the bridge of a Federation flagship. Nurse Chapel also apparently couldn't control her mouth around Spock, saying, Mr. Spock, the men from Vulcan treat their women strangely. At least people say that. But you're part human, too. I know you don't. You couldn't hurt me, would you? I'm in love with you, Mr. Spock. You, the human Mr. Spock, the Vulcan Mr. Spock. Also, there was a not-so-subtle theme of powerful female lifeforms being brought to heal by Kirk. Kirk threatens an alien princess with a spanking. There is an entire episode centered around the idea that women are too emotional and out of control to be in command. <coughs> Janice Lester. <coughs> the android Kirk completely overpowers with a kiss. The show would also set the tone for how Star Trek treated their actresses. Powerful characters portrayed by women were often stripped of their power by studio executives. Grace Lee Whitney, who played Yeoman Rand, was written out of the show after only eight episodes. Whitney once explained in an interview with the UK Sun that her firing was entirely for the sake of Kirk's prolific romantic life. Quote, they wanted William Shatner to have romances in each episode with a different person, because for him to be stuck with one woman was not good for him, and it wasn't good for the audience. One of the blondes had to go. 
My God, was I bitter. Whitney revealed publicly in 1998 that she was sexually assaulted by a Star Trek executive, but did not name her alleged attacker. She attributed her assault and bitterness in regard to the series as contributing factors to her struggles with alcoholism. Terry Garr, who appeared in one episode, refuses to talk about her time on set due to a poor experience. But Bob Justman, a producer for the show, describes one example where Gene Roddenberry insisted repeatedly that the costume designers make Garr's skirt shorter. He even rolled it up himself at one point, which is just... Ew, why? Nichelle Nichols, the actress who played Uhura, wanted to leave the show on her own terms after the first season due to the frustrating writing. Her role was diminishing, and she wanted to pursue her career on Broadway. But even a diminished role was having far-reaching impact. The day after Nichols told Star Trek's creator and then-showrunner Gene Roddenberry of her plan to leave the series, she attended an NAACP dinner party where she was told a big fan wanted to meet her. She recalled, quote, I thought it was a Trekkie, so I said, sure. I looked across the room, and there was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. walking towards me with this big grin on his face. He reached out to me and said, yes, Miss Nichols, I am your greatest fan. He said that Star Trek was the only show that he and his wife Coretta would allow their three little children to stay up and watch. She told King about her plans to leave the series. I never got to tell him why, because he said, you can't. You're part of history, end quote. Nichols' role made waves, and because of it, she would endure incredible racism on set. She recalled, quote, There were instances where I was turned away from entering the studio at the walk-on gate, and I had to go all the way around to the front gate, sign in, and come back. A guard on the set told me I had no right being there, that they had replaced a blue-eyed blonde with me, end quote. Horrifyingly enough, at the time, several of the Star Trek comics were printed with Ahura being depicted as a blue-eyed blonde. But Dr. King wasn't the only one positively impacted by Ahura. Lieutenant Ahura also inspired Whoopi Goldberg to go into acting. Goldberg remembers running to her parents saying, I saw a black woman on television and she ain't no maid. Goldberg later went on to play a significant role in the Star Trek series The Next Generation. Dr. Mae Jemison, the first black woman in space, also credits Ahura for inspiring her career as an astronaut. Stating, quote, as a little girl growing up on the south side of Chicago in the 60s, I always knew I was going to be in space because she saw Nichelle Nichols as Lieutenant Uhura on the Enterprise. She would also later appear in a cameo on Star Trek The Next Generation as an engineer aboard the Enterprise. During the 60s, Nichols was one of the very few black women on television, while even fewer were in leadership roles. More incredibly for the time, she was a character in a world where race was unimportant. Aboard the Enterprise, Uhura's race didn't matter but it absolutely mattered to the 60s audiences. All the women on the show influenced the world just by existing in their fictional one. By taking up spaces not previously considered female, they opened up so many male-dominated spaces as a possibility for women everywhere. Dr. Patricia Vettel Becker, a professor of art history at Montana State University explained why the female characters of the original series were such a revelation. Quote, Such characters would be a fantasy projection, a way for them to imagine themselves in such a position, commanding a starship and its crew while enjoying the pleasures of fashionable attire, comfortable furnishings, and sexual companionship on one's own terms. The show was canceled after only three seasons, 
but the original Enterprise crew's mission continued through an animated series and several movies. Eventually, though, a new generation would begin going where no man had gone before. Actually, one of the many changes made with Star Trek The Next Generation was to modify the opening statement from no man to no one. Which is such a great example of how The Next Generation endeavored to make progressive changes, but ultimately they too set out with the best intentions while falling short of their utopian goals. Which is only a reflection of the progress of the time. And it makes sense. In the two decades that had passed in between the creation of the original series and The Next Generation, the feminist movement had progressed into various incarnations, landing on post-feminism in the late 80s. It was clear by this time that privileged women were no longer content to be homemakers, but this transition was proving to be a hard pill to swallow for many individuals still content with the oppressive mindsets of the decades before women's lib. Star Trek faced the quandary of reconciling the lofty goals of its space utopia with the demands of TV viewers at the time, and it sought to overcome this difficulty by uniting femininity with occupation. Because an audience of the time would view women in power as emasculating to overcome the threat of feminine agency, these women in power used their positions to validate the male characters. Though at the time these roles for women were extremely progressive, they also served the purpose of alleviating the anxiety about women in the workforce. They literally employed femininity. They made femininity an occupation. But they did it in a subtle way. A way that allowed women to have power, but still be non-threatening. Once again, they were pushing the envelope within the framework of their time. When TNG first premiered, there were three main female characters, much like the original show. Denise Crosby as Tasha Yar was the head of security. Marina Sirtis as Deanna Troy was the ship's counselor. And Gates McFadden as Beverly Crusher was the ship's doctor. And through these positions, much like in the original series, women were able to see themselves in roles that they had only previously dreamed of. And almost as important as these women being in their positions of power were the male characters around them framed as their friends and allies who took them seriously and respected their authority. For the most part, scenes between male and female characters did not include the condescension and sexism that was present in the original series. And this is demonstrated in Season 4, Episode 5, Remember me. In that episode, Gates McFadden delivers a jaw-dropping performance. Honestly. I mean, I was on the edge of my seat the entire time. It was incredible. In Remember Me, spoiler alert, Dr. Crusher experiences a phenomenon wherein members of the Enterprise crew are disappearing and she is the only one to remember their existence. Knowing that their ship's doctor is a competent, rational professional, the male members of her crew take her assertions that something is very wrong seriously and enact labor-intensive measures to investigate the issue and over and over take her claims seriously in ways that as a female viewer, I personally found both incredible and forward-thinking. And just this week, Harvey Weinstein was sentenced to 23 years in prison for sexual assault. Reflect on how long it has taken history to believe women. The wheel of belief was set in motion because of shows like this. Marina Sirtis has been quoted several times saying that the actresses taking a stand as part of the Me Too movement are her heroes. But honestly, it shows like Star Trek that she was a part of that contributed to society hearing their stories and believing them. Star Trek has helped women feel seen in remarkable ways. But the female figureheads of progress on the show still had to deal with the sexism of the time. There are countless stories of sexism among the executives responsible for TNG. 
Marina Sirtis has spoken out about it several times over the last few decades, mentioning the battles they waged for, well, wages, storylines with depth, and the unreasonable demands made of the actresses to look a certain way and fit into, at least in Sirtis's case, objectifying costumes. Sirtis said, quote, Women are always paid less, and the negotiations are always uglier because there is some kind of feeling that we don't deserve the same money as the boys. It was always ugly. I quit smoking for six years, but what got me started again was the contract negotiations with Paramount. This is how bad it was. End quote. Meanwhile, Gates McFadden constantly championed for meteor scripts for the female characters, citing a desire to have Dr. Crusher be a more intellectual role model for her son and for the ladies to be included in the action scenes, especially since she and Sirtis were the only ones trained in that at the time. Her requests would ultimately be heard and implemented in the next two incarnations of Star Trek, DS9 and Voyager. Both DS9 and Voyager took progress even further. The female lead roles slowly but surely decreased in their tendency to augment male characters, and in Captain Janeway, the world saw a lead female protagonist who answered to no one. You can try and stop us from getting to the truth, but I promise you, if you do, I will respond with all the unique technologies at my command. And man, did a lot of people not like that. The decision to cast a female lead was heavily scrutinized by executives at Paramount and UPN, who was airing the show at the time. And with that scrutiny came the endless micromanagement of the image of Captain Janeway. Kate Mulgrew, who played Our Lady of Determination, reflected on her experiences on set during the filming of the first season, stating, quote, My hair, my breasts, my feet, my waist. There was a woman in the captain's chair and they didn't know what to do. So it was all physicalized. And she knew the reason behind it, stating, quote, Of course I knew it was a numbers game. And their demographic was men from 20 to 35. I get all that. But men are not stupid. The last thing they want is a false captain, an impersonator. They want the real deal. So once they let me be me, the men came on board as they are wont to do. End quote. I love Janeway. And she wasn't the only female lead on the show to break barriers. The role of Belana Torres introduced the first Latina woman as a regular character on the show. Portrayed by Roxanne Dawson, she was a half-human, half-Klingon chief engineer who was allowed to be complicated without being criticized or told that she was irrational. However, Jerry Ryan as Seven of Nine had some of the best writing for any female character in Star Trek, but endured similar costume woes as Marina Sirtis. Her catsuit was so tight, she passed out at least two times as a result. Thankfully, both women appear on the newest Trek incarnation, Picard, and are given storylines with depth and reasonable costumes. These are just a few instances, though. Realistically, if we wanted to cover the entire history of gender relations in Star Trek— this would be a series. The juxtaposition of Mejal Barrett's role as both Nurse Chapel and later Loaxana Troy in TNG is a feminist discourse on its own. We could delve into DS9 and the abysmal gender gap in the writer's room for Enterprise, but all of this points towards a singular truth. Star Trek moves forward the goalposts for humanity while struggling to hold its own creative team to the same standards. This is often because the bar of acceptable behavior towards women in reality, both personally and professionally, is not just low, it's subterranean. Which is reflected in how successful the show is in achieving its goals. The Bechdel test is a great way to measure a piece of entertainment's female representation, in that it shows whether a show or movie does the bare minimum. 
To pass the test, two named women must talk to each other about something besides a man. Now, this may seem simple, pathetic even, but Star Trek has performed as follows. In the original series, 7.5% of episodes pass the Bechdel test. In The Next Generation, 44.9. Deep Space Nine, 57.8. Voyager, 86.9. And taking a step backwards with some of the decisions on Enterprise, it only comes in at 39%. Discovery, though not yet tested as a whole, will probably have the highest rating of all with many of their lead characters being not just women, but women of color. I'm curious as to how Star Trek would score on the Kent test. Created by Clarkisha Kent, it measures how well pieces of media represent femmes of color. And though I can guess that Discovery may do well, I'm not optimistic about the other shows. But what I am optimistic about is the fact that Star Trek continues to boldly go where few have ventured before in regard to the representation of women in media. All of the women from each generation of the show have opened the door to new opportunities and greater representation a little wider with each passing decade, providing generations of girls with impressive role models. The women of Star Trek became the measure of which I strived and still endeavor to be. I try to have the empathy of Troy, the curiosity of Dax, the leadership of Janeway, the integrity of Crusher, the wisdom of Guinan the introspective nature of Seven, the intelligence of Torres, the grace of Uhura. These role models made it so I could grow up knowing I could do anything. A true spacefaring woman, Sally Ride, once said, you can't be what you can't see. And Star Trek has constantly expanded on what women can see themselves as. Is there any better illustration of that than astronaut Samantha Cristoforetti tweeting a picture of herself on the International Space Station, wearing a Star Trek uniform, and quoting Janeway, There's coffee in that nebula. Thanks again, as always, for listening. Be sure to follow our social media at Tyler and France, F-R-A-N-T-Z. We'll see you next week. And until then, live long and prosper.